rabbi named Harold Kushner wrote a book which became an international bestseller entitled When Bad Things Happen to Good People it attempted to answer the age-old question of why a God who is a God of love and a God of power allows evil to occur and suffering in our world. And although it offers some useful insights, many of you may have read it, and demolishes some facile answers, its ultimate conclusion is hard to reconcile with the God who is revealed in the Bible. His conclusion is that God is good, that he is not all-powerful. In the words of the title of chapter 7, it's entitled, God can't do everything, but he can do some important things. My purpose this morning is not to deal with the book or the issues it raises, but rather to turn the question which Rabbi Kushner asks on its head. The back cover of the book declares, in big bold red letters, there is only one question which really matters. Why do bad things happen to good people? I would like to suggest there is another question which is equally, if not more important. Not why do bad things happen to good people, but why do good things happen to bad people? Now I don't mean by this the old age-old question, why do drug barons drive around in big cars and mass murderers die peacefully of old age? Rather I mean, why do good things happen to any of us? For if the Bible's diagnosis is true, there is no one good, not even one, then why should we expect anything good? You see, most of us, when misfortune strikes, are quick to ask God, what have I done to deserve this? Far fewer, when fortune smiles on us, ask the same question, what have I done to deserve this? So to change the title of the book, Let's focus today on what we should do when good things happen to bad people. That is, when good things happen to any of us. And today, we look at an example of how a king, representing a nation, responded when something very good happened to him and to his people. And the name of the king, we've already heard, was Solomon. The people were the most privileged people on earth, the people of Israel that God had chosen as his very own people. And on this particular day in question, it was one of the greatest days in their history. They met together to celebrate something incredibly good that had happened to them. The completion of a fantastic, magnificent temple in honour of the Lord their God. And the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's visible presence with the people of Israel, was carried by the priests with great ceremony and pomp into the temple and into the inner sanctum, what was called the most holy place or the holy of holies. And then most wonderful of all, we read that the glory of the Lord descended and filled the temple. And it was such an overwhelming and powerful experience that the priests couldn't even carry on with their duties. It was the greatest day, if you like, in the history of the nation. So what did Solomon do in these circumstances. What do you do when something really good like that happens? Well, Solomon prayed. 
he responded to God in prayer. It's one of the longest recorded prayers in the Bible. And this morning I want to simply focus on the final part of the prayer as we come in our series, People in Prayer, to Solomon appealing to the Lord. So, if you have a Bible, it will help to have one. There are Bibles in the pews. Will you turn to 1 Kings, this is in the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 8, and we're going to read from verse 54 to 61. Now, it's page 346. If you have a pew Bible, you're not sure if your way around the Bible. That's okay. Page 346. 1 Kings, chapter 8, verse 54. When Solomon had finished all these prayers and the supplications to the Lord, he rose from before the altar of the Lord, where he had been kneeling with his hands spread out towards heaven. He stood and blessed the whole assembly of Israel, in a loud voice saying, Praise be to the God who has given rest to his people Israel, just as he promised. Not one word has failed of all the good promises he gave through his servant Moses. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he never leave us nor forsake us. May he turn our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep the commands, decrees, and regulations he gave to our fathers. And may these words of mine, which I have prayed before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may uphold the cause of his servants and the cause of his people Israel according to each day's need, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is no other. But your hearts must be fully committed to the Lord our God to live by his decrees and obey his commands as at this time. This is God's word. I'm pretty aware that in a congregation of this size, every time we meet there are people who are suffering because of bad things that have happened to them. You may have had such a bad week in your own experience. But there are others of us this morning, perhaps, in fact, the majority, for whom, thankfully, no such bad thing has happened, at least recently. Many of us are enjoying the good things of life. And if you are a Christian this morning, then no matter what your circumstances may be, no matter what may have happened this week, ultimately, the best thing has happened to you. The best thing possible. That God, in His love, has drawn you to Himself, brought you into His family, cancelled out all the bad things that you've done in your life, put His Spirit within you, is with you every day, and has given you the ultimate assurance that when this brief life is over, you will spend eternity in His presence. And so this morning, if you've had a bad week, and I don't minimise that, one of the reasons we come together week by week in God's providence is to refocus on what really counts and what never changes. 
So if that is the case for you today, how do you pray in those circumstances? How do you respond to God when things are going well? Something we don't often talk about because most of us turn to God and pray to God when things are going badly and we realize we need His help. But I want you to think a bit this morning on what do you do when good things happen to bad people like you and me? And I want to suggest from this prayer of Solomon and from many of the places in the Bible something very simple. If you look at the text in front of you, I want to suggest there are two facts that should always inform our prayers. Two facts that should always inform our prayers. Now the first and most important of all is what I would call the faithfulness of God. Look at Solomon's prayer. It begins on a note of praise to God. Praise be to the Lord. But the reason he praises the Lord on this wonderful occasion is because the Lord has been faithful. He has kept his promises and he has kept his word. Every promise, every word, not one has failed. So Solomon is looking back, as it were, with gratitude to God in verse 56. Praise be to the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel just as he promised. Not one word has failed of all the good promises he gave through his servant Moses. Now, he's speaking to the people of Israel and he's speaking about Moses, their great leader. What are the promises he's talking about? What he's saying, as it were, to the people of Israel, do you remember? Do you remember when you were an enslaved people? under the yoke of Egyptian taskmasters, building those pyramids all those years before. You were an oppressed people without hope. And yet God promised through Moses that he would bring you out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And God promised that. And do you remember? He did it. Against all the odds. Against the greatest empire on earth, God brought you out. And do you remember? Those 40 years when he wandered around the wilderness in disobedience and rebelliousness against God, yet God didn't abandon the people of Israel to die in the desert. He was faithful to his promises. And he kept you going all through those years. And you remember he brought you into Canaan, a land possessed by all sorts of people. And God enabled you to have victory over your enemies. And now you live in this land of your own. And God has kept his promises. And now you have this wonderful land that you're settled in. God has kept his promises. And he's brought you to this capital city, Jerusalem, built by David, Solomon's father. And now he's enabled Solomon to build this magnificent temple. And so at last, notice what he says. At last, he says, the Lord has given rest to his people just as he promises. So looking back, Solomon praises the Lord for his faithfulness to their fathers always keeping his word, never once failing to do what he promised. And with this assurance of past history, a 100% success rate of the Lord's faithfulness, Solomon looks forward into the future. As he's praying, he looks into the future. He says, Lord, you've been faithful in the past. Now he looks forward with hope. Verse 57. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he never leave us or forsake us. And in the present then he says, Lord, I'm coming to you now. I'm looking to you in prayer. Verse 59 and 60. May these words of mine, which I have prayed before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night. 
that he may uphold the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel according to each day's need so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. Solomon's ultimate conviction in prayer is that he is coming to a God who is absolutely faithful. And what Solomon prayed and looked forward to, that day when all peoples on earth would worship the same God, were amazingly fulfilled. The Lord's name is known throughout the earth. That's why we're here. Very few of us have the privilege of being born Jews. And yet we're part, if you're a Christian, by God's grace, part of God's family. Because the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob is also the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. All the promises are fulfilled in Jesus. So the Apostle Paul, for example, in the New Testament, writing to the Christians in Corinth, Gentile Christians, of coming to God's family, he says to them, remember, no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. When we come to God in prayer, in the name of Jesus, God answers all his promises through the authority and merits of Jesus. So if you're a Christian, we look back on a much longer history of God's faithfulness than even Solomon experienced. We look back to the life, the death, the birth, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian looks back to the coming of Jesus. And we look forward. If God has kept all his promises concerning Christ in every detail, we look forward that he will keep his final promise and all those promises surrounding the return of Christ. God always keeps his promises. But I'll tell you one of the things that concerns me. I wonder if I was to go around the congregation and say to each one of you give me a promise of God from the Bible I wonder how soon we'd dry up and run out of the promises there are hundreds of promises in God's word which all find their yes and amen in Jesus and yet today we're soft and so ignorant of the promises of God that God is faithful When I was younger, which is a long time ago, and some of the older ones will smile at this because they'll remember the same thing, many Christian homes had, usually on the sideboard, what was called a promise box. Just wave your hand if you know what a promise box is. Ah, all the old people, yes, thank you very much. I mean, my age and older. <laughs> Here's one that one of the older members of the congregation gave to me. If you're a younger person and want to see it, you're welcome to come and have a look at it. It's a box, and it's full of little rolled up verses from the Bible which contain promises of God. And they're all rolled up, this one hasn't got one, but they used to have like a little silver pair of tweezers. And every day you took one out and read it and then put it back. Now I know you can take verses out of context and you can abuse something like this and you need to read God's word in context, don't misunderstand. But you learn the promise of God. And as I was thinking about this in my office when I was preparing this, I reached over to the promise box and I thought, I wonder, I'll, I'll get a verse out. This is perfectly true. And I opened the thing and I unwrapped, here they are, the little promise. And I under, unwrapped the little verse and it says, this is the authorised version, King James Version, of course. There remaineth therefore a rest for the people of God. Hebrews 4, verse 9. You know what Solomon prayed? He praised God because he has given his people rest 
And the New Testament takes... I'm going to preach a sermon on Hebrews 4 now. now. The New Testament takes at this theme and says, if you're a Christian, there's still a rest to come. The ultimate rest, not settled in, a, in, in Israel. But the ultimate rest is in God's kingdom. Far greater than Solomon celebrated. And in the present, we have even greater assurance. Because we can come to God in prayer through the Lord Jesus Christ. We come to God with the assurance that He hears us because one speaks on our behalf, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible's full of all sorts of promises. We look to the Lord, but to the Lord Jesus in prayer. book of Hebrews chapter 4 says, Jesus is our great high priest. And therefore we hold firmly to the faith we profess. And he finishes by saying, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The question is, do we know the promises of God? Do we have that assurance of God's faithfulness? We used to sing again, this being nostalgic here, we used to sing an old hymn in Sankey's called Standing on the Promises of God. Standing on the promises that cannot fail. Standing, I'm standing on the promises of God. Do we know and claim God's promises in prayer? Very interesting to listen to people praying when we pray, we only pray with confidence and claim things from God if God has promised them. If God has promised it, expect it. If he hasn't, forget it. The Apostle Peter calls them his great, very great and precious promises. So if you are a Christian this morning, no matter what bad things may have happened to you, You can rely on God's faithfulness. He's kept you this far. He will keep you in the future. And whatever your circumstances, you can come to Him in prayer. But remember, everything you have is only attributable to God's faithfulness. When good things happen, never think, I merited this. God is faithful. Because this was the great contrast between the gods who were around at the time of Israel and are still around today. Those capricious deities that you could never rely on because one day they might say something, the next day something else. One day without any reason they might refuse you, the next day they might welcome you. No God is ultimately and utterly faithful, consistent. Absolutely. And I tell you this, in the last analysis, He is the only one you can fully rely on. He's the only one who is able and willing to keep his promises. So that's the first thing. When you pray, the first important thing is, remember, always keep in mind that God is faithful. But there's a second thing you need to keep in mind as well, at the same time. Not only the faithfulness of the Lord, but the fickleness of the Lord's people. Along with affirming the Lord's faithfulness, Solomon shows that he is only too painfully aware of the fickleness of God's people. That same history, which recorded all the good promises of God that he kept, also recorded all the promises of Israel and the people that they failed to keep. It's a sad record, the record of God's people. And Solomon, as he comes in prayer, he's absolutely realistic about this. We don't have time to look at the whole prayer, but if you've got the Bible there open at 1 Kings 8, it's a, a very long prayer, 
that sort of begins his prayer of dedication at verse 22. And we don't have time to read through it all, but notice he envisages seven different scenarios that might happen in the future. Alright? If you turn over the page there, for example in verse 33. When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn their back to you, and when they turn back to you, and confess your name, praying and making supplication to you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel. Bring them back to the land you gave to their fathers. Verse 35, when the heavens are shut up, the first was military defeat, when there's drought and rain, because the people have sinned against you, and when they pray towards this place, and confess your name and turn from their sin because you've afflicted them, then hear from heaven, forgive the sin of your servants, your people of Israel. Teach them the right way to live. Send rain on the land you gave to your people as an inheritance. He's a man who is absolutely realistic about the Lord's people because he's one of them. He sees the need for future forgiveness. But in this prayer at the end that we looked at, he is also far more perceptive because Solomon was a very wise man. He sees that the problem is even more fundamental and serious. The need for a change of heart. Did you notice verse 58? He says, May he, the Lord, turn our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commands, decrees and regulations that he gave to our fathers. You see, Solomon recognizes that the natural inclination of the human heart is to turn away from God. We are not neutral beings, you know, in a middle position where we can either go to the left or the right. We always turn away from the right to the wrong. Our natural inclination is that way. And so Solomon in his prayer says, Lord, you know the fickleness of the hearts of these people of which I am one, speaking on behalf of the people, representatively. And he says, Lord, the most important thing is turn the hearts of your people back to yourself. He goes behind behind action to desire so that obedience will flow from desire rather than some outward and imposed conformity. And the history of the people of Israel showed that they did their best to keep God's law. But they constantly failed. But again, what Solomon hoped for has been fulfilled in the new covenant in Jesus Christ. See, God has put his spirit in our hearts to give us not an outward conformity, but an inward desire to seek after God. Romans 8 puts it like this those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what the nature desires but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires that's the most important fundamental principle here maybe you're not yet a Christian maybe you think I'd like to be a Christian but I just don't think I could live the way a Christian is supposed to live absolutely you're completely right And your big problem is not just living the way a Christian should, but desiring what pleases Christ. Because the sinful nature desires other sorts of things. So what's going to change that? The only thing that will change it is if God comes to live within you by His Spirit and give you a desire for what pleases Him. However, if you are a Christian, there is no cause here for complacency. Because complacency leads to self-reliance. The warning to New Testament Christians based on the Old Testament record is 
1 Corinthians 10:12, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. And the wise person, like Solomon, recognizes this fact, not just in regard to others, but first and foremost for himself or herself. So let me ask you if you're a Christian. Do you think it's possible you could ever just fall away from God? If you're a Christian this morning, do you think it's possible that you could fall into sin? Or do you say, well, no, 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 I'm a committed Christian. There's just no way that could happen to me. Listen, take it from me. Apart from God's grace and diligence, all of us are in spiritual danger. Oh, it's great to sing, and I love singing it, and we're going to sing it this evening, because Andy's chosen it as his, his hymn, that, that song, My Jesus, My Saviour, Lord, There Is None Like You. But whenever I sing it, I sort of, sort of mutter into my breath, sort of mentally, Forever I'll love you, forever I'll stand. And I sing, By Your Grace. One of the older hymns puts it like this. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And if you've been a Christian any length of time, you'll know in your own heart that proneness to wonder. To go your own way. To drift away from God. And I've sadly been around long enough to know even some of the Christians I respected the most highly. Some of the key people I trusted have drifted away from God and I pray for them pray that God will bring them back but I never pray in any sense of saying I'm better than them because I know my own heart I know the inclination in my heart and I know that I need God's grace and so when you pray when you pray remember at all times the fickleness of the human heart now that doesn't remove from us our own responsibility. Look at Solomon's final words in verse 61. But your hearts must be fully committed to the Lord your God to live by his decrees and obey his commands as at this time. So these two facts, I suggest to you, should inform our prayers. And they're kind of opposite extremes, aren't they? The faithfulness of God, the fickleness of God's people. And if you shift in any way from either of them, if you narrow the gap in any way, you are on the road to disaster. If you begin to doubt God's faithfulness, or to trust in your own abilities and strength, then you head down the road to disaster. And tragically, sadly, this was the case with Solomon and the people of Israel, despite all God's warnings. The record of Scripture says that when the celebrations were over, and it must have been an incredible occasion, Solomon did what everybody else did in the nation. He went to bed. Right? You don't need to theological insight to work that out. But the Bible tells us that very night, God appeared to him and responded to his prayer, to his appeal. Now you'll find it in the next chapter... But the same record, of course, is in the books of Chronicles, which parallel from a different perspective the record of Kings. And I want to read what it says in Chronicles for a reason I'll explain in a moment. So, if you've got your Bibles, just turn over to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, page 442. 
2 Chronicles chapter 7 and we'll read from verse 11. When Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and his own palace, the Lord appeared to him at night and said, this is the Lord's response to Solomon's appeal. I have heard your prayer and I have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever my eyes and my heart will always be there as for you if you walk before me as David your father did and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father when I said you shall never fail to have a man to rule over Israel but if you turn away and forsake the decrees and commands I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot Israel from my land which I have given them, will reject this temple which I have consecrated for my name, I will make it a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. And though this temple is now so imposing, all who pass by will be appalled and say, Why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and this temple? People will answer because they have forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of Egypt and have embraced other gods, worshipping and serving them. That is why he brought all this disaster on them. Now the Lord's response here, we're almost at the end, but this is very important. The Lord's response to Solomon's prayer. Did you notice? It begins with a promise, but it ends with a warning. And it's a warning that Solomon failed to heed. Remember how he concluded his prayer, verse 61, 1 Kings 8? But your hearts must be fully committed to the Lord our God to live by his decrees, to obey his commands as at this time. He failed to practice what he preached. He took many foreign wives who drew him away from the Lord and this is what it says about Solomon at the end of his life. 1 Kings 11, verse 4. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. The result was that on Solomon's death, the kingdom of Israel was torn in two, never to be reunited again. And within three and a half centuries, this magnificent temple, the Babylonians marched into Jerusalem, raised it to the ground to rubble. And the warning of God's word came true for the people of Israel. Now I read the account from 2 Chronicles 7 because verse 14, if you've been a Christian any time, verse 14 is one of the verses that Christians always quote in regard to revival. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. However, if we are to do this, and I'm not at all sure it is directly applicable, of the new covenant but if we are to do this in principle and claim the promise of God's word then we cannot ignore the warning of God's word as well I have never heard any Christian quote or claim any part of the second half of what the Lord said to Solomon the certainty of God's judgment on any people which abandons him 
and turns away from him and forsakes his ways. Now you may say, well, we're Christians. We live under the new covenant. Things are different now. Listen, the principles are still the same. The promises of God's word, but also God's judgment if we ignore his warnings. It has happened and it is happening. This week I read a paper written by Professor Andrew Walls, who's at the University of Edinburgh uh, in the Centre for the Study of Christianity in the Non-Western World. Listen what he writes, and I think it's very salutary. It's what he says. Arabia is so Muslim now that it's hard to remember that the Yemen was once a Christian kingdom. Egypt, Syria and Tunisia were once the showcase churches. Churches that led the Christian world, adorned by the greatest theologians, the most profound scholars, sanctified by the blood of the martyrs. The Christian faith was once professed by the whole Euphrates Valley and by most of the people who now live in Iraq. New churches were springing up in Iran and across Central Asia, even in the places we now call Afghanistan and Tajikistan. In each of these cases, a place that had been a leading centre of the Christian faith ceased to hold that position. Of course, the gospel light was not snuffed out. It flared into life. Where? In the Western world, where we are. And from that went out the great missionary movement to the ends of the earth. But now in what Professor Wolf calls the greatest recession the Christian faith has known since the rise of Islam in the 7th century, that greatest recession is now taking place in Europe and into North America. And the growth of the church now is in Africa, Latin America, Asia, and to some degree in the Pacific Rim. You see, we cannot ignore God's warnings as individuals and as churches. And I speak to this church in Charlotte Chapel. If we ever start thinking that this church is full because we're good people or because so has been full or because of some merit of our own, And only because of God's faithfulness we're on the slippery slope that leads to disaster. Or you say Charlotte Chapel's been full for a hundred years. Yes. It could be empty very quickly if we forget these facts. And that when we come to prayer we must always hold these two facts in mind. The faithfulness of God who keeps his promises but also the fickleness of God's people. And so I conclude by asking, are we claiming God's promises and are we heeding God's warnings? Because you can't have one without the other. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are a faithful God we look back in our own lives and the life of this particular church and thank you for your great faithfulness over the years that has kept and sustained us. And we look back and say that it's all of your grace and power. And even the measure to which we've been able to follow you has been because you've turned our hearts towards you. But Lord, we have a responsibility to be wholehearted in our 
commitment to you unceasing in our love for you and so often we fail and so Lord this morning as individuals and as a church we want to claim your promises but we also want to heed the warnings Lord you know each one of us you know our own circumstances you know those of us who have already drifted away although we're here in, in body spiritually we've drifted far from you Lord if that's the case may we heed the warning before it's too late and for those of us who are facing bad times Lord remind us as you have this morning of those facts that never change those good things the best things of belonging to you so Lord help us to hear your word and to obey it throughout our lives however long they be Help us, Lord, to keep running the race until we see the Saviour. And not like Solomon to fall at the last hurdle in tragedy, but rather by your grace to complete the course in triumph. Lord, help us, we pray, by your Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's conclude by singing a hymn of commitment, which keeps that balance really. It, it's on the screen, 501 if you need books at the side. So Jesus, I have promised to serve thee to the end. Be thou forever near me, my master and my friend. I shall not fear the battle if thou art by my side. No wonder from the pathway if thou wilt be my guide. Maybe you want to make this your commitment as we stand and sing at the conclusion of this service let's stand together
final assurance from God's word from the end of the little book of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God our Saviour be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Amen.